0: Welcome to another episode of the On the Way podcast, a podcast promoting an open minded, non dualistic, compassionate view of faith. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined as I regularly am by Peter Cat. Thanks for joining us, Peter.
1: Thanks, Dom. Great to be here again.
0: And uh, today we've got two special guests joining the podcast. Firstly, Dr. Joe Inkpen, uh, Australia's first openly transgender priest. Thank you for joining us, Joe. No, it's a delight. Yeah. And uh, Chris Dowd, author of Trans Faith, a new book describing itself as a resource for ministers and congregations who want to begin to understand and or welcome transgender people into their congregations. Chris, thanks for dropping by.
2: No, thank you. Uh,
0: now, today we will be exploring the ways in which transgender identity influences a faith life and Search for Meaning, um, both for those who identify as transgender and are on that journey personally, and for those who hope to gain new perspectives and insights on gender and its relation to the faith journey. Um, uh, From the outset, I should say this is a topic many people, myself included, probably don't know a great deal uh, about, and I want to start by acknowledging, I guess as humbly as I can, that I feel quite naive in this area, but eager to learn. And I think a good place to to start there, Joe, might be to hear your personal story if you're happy to share that.
3: Yeah, sure. I can say something about that. Um, I mean, uh, gender diverse people's stories are quite varied. And and, um, I think there have been a number of ways of portraying that in the past. And we've each got, there's some things that we've got in common, but quite a lot of complexity. My own uh, story is, and I've come out late in life as a transgender person, but I've always been like that and as I understand it now um, I can understand a little bit we're still working that out biologically and so on but from when I was a child you know um <laughs> I remember my first day at school and we got divided into two lines and um uh, we we got told to go into two different lines and i remember those two of us who kind of were in the middle and we didn't know what to do because i didn't really identify very strongly with the boys line people think and they were all very boisterous and and everything else and and the the little girl couldn't kind of work that out and then we went inside and 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 it was very gender you know um divided and um uh, the girls were allowed to go in the Wendy House, which I thought was quite an exciting place to be. But um, and the boys were quite interesting; they they bombed it, you know, and things. And um, I couldn't kind of relate to either. So I mean, that's a kind of a trivial thing. But as I grew, up, I mean, I grew up in a, a little rural community in England, and you know, back in the sixties, seventies, we just didn't have the language. You know, it was mm. you know we only just uh, working through you know um, legalizing um, gay relationships at all, never mind marriage. Quality and everything, and so you know, I. It's been a long journey. There's a lot I could say, but I moved to Australia in 2001, and 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 I had to put because we were almost starting again. I had to put. I was sort of coming out then and, and realized and it was a point at which the church in England was the first um, Anglican pr- trans priests were were coming through. Maybe I'd have been part of that generation or shortly after, but I had to bury that. And uh, I had a wonderful. I've had a wonderful ministry here and li- life in Australia, but. Inside I was really um, dying and I, if I hadn't, if I'm not, I, you know, the life was closing in and it was like more and more anger and frustration and now I'm so much happier. You know, I went to Synod last year and, and someone came up to me and they said, can I say something? And I thought, oh no. And being a trans woman, I thought, oh no, it's something to do with my makeup or something. And they said, no, no, no. And they, didn't say, and they said, no, And I've never seen you. This is a senior member of the diocese. And they said, I've never seen you looking so happy And I thought, well, that's it, really. And um, so I'm a better priest, a better person. And, you know, I have finally started to learn the, you know, the great lesson that Jesus said to love God with all of yourself, not just with certain parts of the whole of you and to love your neighbor as yourself. And loving ourselves is so difficult and so difficult for trans people. And I'm so glad that people have enabled me to break through, including Chris's. Uh, co-author of this book, uh, Tina Beardsley, who's been like a um, uh, great mentor to me and um, thanks to people who've gone before, um, I'm where I am and I, I hope to pass that on.
0: Well Chris, we might just chat a bit about the, the book now, um, which uh, I believe is just about to be released in Australia, maybe has just been released at the time of recording. Um, can you tell us, I guess, what prompted you to go on the journey of writing this book and, and what you learned along the way?
2: Okay, um, Well, it's quite funny because as a minister who has always had a large LGBT uh, contingent in my congregation, one of the things I found was when I was accompanying people through their gender journey, we would get to a point where quite often they had transitioned identity, they were beginning to heal and be happy, and then they disappear. And... The first time it happened, I thought, "What on earth did I do to that person <laughs> to to make them run so far away from me?" After all we've been through, and then it happened again, and it happened again, and then I spoke to several colleagues who had it, had exactly the same experience. So over a bottle of wine, we're, we're trying to come up with all of these reasons, what we could have done. But but so when I started looking at what I was going to do as a doctorate. That was the obvious thing to do, because it was a huge, burning question, because I wanted to know how I had gone wrong, if that makes sense. And what I, what I came to was the fact that I'd done everything right, that the point of people leaving was the fact they now were strong enough that they didn't need me anymore. Mm. And that was incredibly important that I had been privileged to walk with these people, but then also they were wise enough to realize that they needed to walk by themselves. And for me, I think that was such a great release for me to realize that the book gave me that insight that I didn't have before. But also, I think, because I'm quite a argumentative person, I think, in many ways, <laughs> um, one of the things I found was a lot of the stuff I was hearing um, didn't feel very pastoral when we're talking about trans people. Because I think one of the things so often when you look at bad TV documentaries, they always focus on medical stuff. They always focus on surgery and hormones and dressing and all Mm. of those sorts of things. And actually that's the smallest part, I think, of creating an identity.
0: You've mentioned that this was a book that partially you wrote because you were looking for it and you couldn't find anything really on on the matter, anything that was dealing with that, I guess, from a pastoral point of view.
2: Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And, and I think one of the things that, that I was finding was we we're all constantly reinventing the wheel. That what we we're doing is we we're all trying to work out how to do this. And also, I think, particularly when you're not trans yourself and you're aware of the enormous responsibility you have in order to help somebody sort of go, th- you know, walk through this journey, that you're really afraid of getting it wrong. Mm. And you're really afraid, and you think this person mm-hmm. has already suffered enough. And you shouldn't be adding to their suffering by actually being completely ignorant or stupid or whatever. And I think one of the things that that I hope this book does is actually reassure people that actually there isn't a right way or a wrong way, but there are some things that sort of help you to inform the situation. Because obviously each person's transition and their gender journey will be different. So rather than sort of writing a how-to, we start here, and then at the end we end up with a healthy, whole trans person, which I think would be incredibly arrogant, but not only that, not very clever. Um, what I've tried to do is, is come up with ways of getting people to think about things. So, for example, part of the book, for example, talks about what the church has written, and also about how the church has not written with trans people they've written about trans people so for example a lot of the stuff that has been written by the Catholic Church the Anglican Church and just about every church um, has never actually they don't seem to ever have spoken to someone who has gone through the gender journey and so there's this sort of theological ivory tower over here that has absolutely nothing to do with the lived experience of the people that I know and have Mm -hmm. worked with so for me it was about saying okay let's actually talk let's so it was interesting when I when I started the book um, I had all these questions um, as you do when you're a doctoral student trying to desperately um, sound intelligent as you're asking these questions and the the first question always was tell me about yourself and that was really supposed to be a warm-up question but three hours later (laughs) normally um, that was the only question I ever needed to ask um and I think that was that was sort of really quite humbling and, and really quite interesting um, and I think also, um, as, as part of that, just seeing that, that for many people, and particularly for older trans people, they've lived much of their life believing they're the only person like that on earth, and, and, and we're so far away from God's grace. And that's really difficult. You know, the idea of the church, instead of being this place of refuge and safety and healing, sort of became this sort of like torture chamber where these people were living this life on the surface that frequently looked perfect, Um, frequently looked like they were the most successful Christians because they had become so adept at hiding who they were that they were completely living sort of this this external life that had nothing to do with what was happening inside. And I I think one of the things that, that I'm really struck by is the faith of people that even though the church was telling them that God didn't love them, that they knew that God did.
0: Joe, I can imagine, well, I can't imagine how isolating the the journey must have been. I mean, especially with this book now coming out. But before, there were resources like this, you know, going through thinking perhaps you're the only one or, or maybe not being able to relate to others. That that journey of not feeling like you can live authentically, or, or you can't really be your your yeah, your I think that's self. right,
3: and I think and this is where the, it's made more difficult. It you know, in one level, um, faith has been one of the things that's sustained me, and a lot of trans Christians I know, you know, it's the one thing that's kept kept them going often. But it the church is sometimes like a uh, it's like a prison really, and it and it's like. Uh, feels like a policeman and 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 um as a priest it's quite difficult you know because you don't really want to upset people and um uh, so you're and and the messages you're getting, and there's no space to talk about things. This is what lovely having this conversation in the book and everything is that it breaks the silence that mm. people have, and and it's the uneasy silence as well for people, as Chris has said, of people who don't quite know how to respond. You know, I do a lot of work with Aboriginal people, and it's a bit like that. A lot of people don't really want to enter into this thing because someone, because there's a lot of pain there and trauma, and and you will get it, and people will get it wrong. And I know that if you're not Aboriginal, you'll get it wrong. But that's that doesn't that's not the reason for not doing it. You know, you, that's the first thing you need to know. Well, you get it wrong, but but it's it you know do you have a heart of compassion to enter into that which then allows people to some to speak about trauma but more also and that's part of what in Chris's book which is so positive is for people to be able to speak their experience the the, the positive life giving stuff of trans Christians of how God is, uh, speaks and lives through them and um and the new insights and new ways of looking at Scripture and 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 the Church and um. But unless we've given space, we break that silence. Unless we allowed that space, as Chris says, to be able to tell our stories, we'll be a bit stuck. So it might take a little while for people to have the confidence to do that as well. So I mean, that's why I I said to. (laughs) So I don't really want to be a professional trans person, but because I'm sort of the first out, I, I feel a bit of responsibility just to so that I can open up a few doors. And I think that's what Chris is doing with this. I, I've said about the book, that, you know, it opens pathways for people to talk about these things. You know, in the cathedral and other some other churches, Holy Trinity, we're having this launch of the book um, later today. That places that 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 allow space for people just to share their story and to share our difference. And that's the exciting thing. One of the exciting things in. Christian faith at the moment is the gradually coming to terms with that God has made us different and this is actually a gift it's not a problem a medical problem social problem anything else it's actually a theological gift for everybody
0: Chris you spoke about not wanting to cause any more pain in your research that you were worried about saying or asking the wrong thing mm. um, I imagine that that that's a, quite a universal feeling that when people are uh, you know Coming across people who might have been on this journey that they don't quite know what to say or how to approach it. They don't want to offend. They don't. They can't understand the experience because they haven't been through it, but they can have some sense of how deeply isolating it must have been. But I guess the the message there is to start the conversation to to not just shy away
2: awkwardly, but actually to to speak. Uh, absolutely, and and also I think to ask questions. So one of the things I will frequently ask people is. So how should I address you? What are the pronouns that you would like me to use? Which I know sounds a bit daft, but different people like different pronouns. Different people have different ways that they present themselves. And I think one of the things which I do talk about in the book is that actually our language hasn't caught up with some of these experiences. So for example, my next book that I'm currently researching and writing at the moment, we're looking at how the identity of, of trans people is sort of changing and actually there's lots of sub-identities that are now emerging. And we have no language. So, for example, one of the identities is is bigender where people present sometimes as male, sometimes as female, sometimes as genderqueer. Um, and what do you call their partner? Because at what stage are they heterosexual? What stage are they lesbian? What stage are they genderqueer themselves? We don't have the concepts. We don't have the ideas. And I think one of the things that is fascinating i think particularly about the trans community is the identity really starts coalescing properly when the internet takes off because for the first time you've got a group of people that are able to find each other and to be able to explore their identity safely so the thing that's really interesting is that there are now enormous online trans communities and they're generating all of their own names and their own terminologies and all sorts of things. And sometimes you are gonna get it wrong simply because that group of people have had a conversation over here that you haven't been part of. So for example, the other day I was in this weird conversation with someone about the term dead name. I don't know if you've heard of it, Joe. And it was the first time I'd really heard dead name, which is basically the previous name of the person before they transitioned. So, the first time someone used it I was like can you just explain (laughs) that to me because I'm sort of really struggling here a bit on on what do you mean and I don't know Mm. and I think one of the things is being honest and saying you know I don't know but also not expecting, and I loved what Jo said when she said she just want to be a professional trans person, because I think one of the things that so often happens is when someone is visible, suddenly everybody wants to talk to them <laughs> about everything all the time and never <laughs> wants to talk to them about, and particularly, you know, um, as a minister, I know, I spend a lot of time talking about drains and coffee. Um, and actually, you need to talk about drains and coffee as well as, as all these other things as well. And I think, but there is something about just holding your hands up and going, "Look, I'm really not sure." And for example, I sent my presentation across to Joe early because I wanted to make sure that there was nothing in there that could be misinterpreted, simply because I knew that the language and the concepts here might be a little different.
3: Yeah, and it is. I think it's an evolving thing, really. And um, you know, some terms that are used uh, by some and within uh, tra- gender diverse people disagree about. You know these things as well so we're working working on those things but i think we're learning it's like the grammar you know i know peter was yesterday was talking in the abc um about israel Fala's um statements about lesbian and gay people and so on and um and i think it's about learning respect really <laughs> how we kind of talk to one and how we you know we may have different and we might not understand but it's the way we approach approach things so it's learning those kind of skills that, and, you, and you hope really that the church should be a place that where people can come to and learn you know and have though that sort of ability not you know to be a little bit humbled by the fact we're in you know in the face of a huge great mystery and human beings are part of that and, and every difference that we have is part of that wonder that God has given us and to learn that grammar of respect I think that's part of what our society has to do and, and, and the church you know the, the church has resources to enable people to do that
2: Yeah, I I was also going to say, I think there's also a difference between asking a question to be helpful and a question just to be intrusive. And I think sometimes, and I'm thinking particularly, you know, I'm not quite sure what the equivalent is here, but in Britain we have something called Channel 5, which is sort of trashy TV channel. Um, And... I think you have a few of those by the looks <laughs> yeah, of it. <you>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's um, most of them. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: But for example, they, they did this whole spate of, of transition story, medical transition stories. So suddenly, you know, people felt that they knew everything about transgender people because they'd seen the Channel Five documentary. Mm. and then felt that it was perfectly okay to ask about medical issues and all sorts of things when and I remember saying to somebody uh, who I had to speak to about it, I said would you like me to ask you about the state of your genitals mm. <laughs> and she went how dare you I said well that's what you just did to somebody else yeah. um, and that's really not okay mm. so you know what I mean so I think there's a difference there's questions to be helpful and there's questions to be intrusive
0: uh, I went to a friend of mine from school um, recently. Uh, uh, came out that they are transitioning, and, and she put up a long post um, about uh, answering, I guess, some of those questions. And I think one of the the statements she made was, "If you asked about my genitals beforehand, you can ask about my genitals now."
2: It's, yeah, it's kind of. Yeah.
0: If, and I suppose that that element of people not knowing how to approach it, perhaps some walk on eggshells, some are just ridiculously intrusive. Joe, it must have been a. It must have been a difficult time, I guess, for, for your community around you to get to know you in a way that you'd, I guess, always known yourself, but that they hadn't known you.
3: Yeah, I think that's probably true. I, I mean, I do think, you know, people talk about gen, gentle defenders. I think there's a kind of a bunch of people in the churches and beyond that are sort of obsessed with. Sadly, with genitals and what people do with them, and really, you know, um, that's not the big thing. So, kind of steer away from that. You know, it's really, that's an important thing for many trans people, but it's not for everybody. You know, not, not everybody has. There's a array of different, you know, ways forward, and and surgery may or may not be part of that journey. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of the journey with my church, I mean, one of the I ran rang a counsellor at one point um, through the sort of the church has, and um, and I said, you know, I can't do this anymore, and they said. Um, but I can't, I can't, you know, I'm stuck. I, there's no way, you know, I'm, I wasn't suicidal, but, you know, it's the sort of position that people feel caught in. And they said, but mm, perhaps you're looking at the worst case scenario. You know, maybe church, the people in the churches are more kind of sportive than you think and so on. I said, well, you don't really know churches do. You? <laughs> um, but, um, but, I mean, it's true. And they said, you know, in your parish, because I was in a parish um, as a rector at the time. And I thought, yeah, actually, that's true. There are some people and so there's a big trust thing it, you know to me I'm just amazed by some you know some people are a bit more successful with money and stuff but even that's a huge thing because you you can be losing your reputation your status and everything else but also people who are at the bottom of the heap that the amount of courage and faith that it takes to be who you are is outstanding because you you risk and, and a lot of my friends you know they've lost contact with children and grandchildren and 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 partners and all sorts of other things and, and it's quite devastating and their churches have cut them off and things that have been really precious to them and um, you know I was really scared of losing all of that and I've been really quite blessed but it but it, it is a really great struggle there but the thing that is comforting to me and I think that's one of the things that you know as it is like the gifts of transgender people and I'm kind of exploring at the moment is one of them is is this the courage to be and, and it's a gift for other people. And I find that being who I am has actually encouraged other people to be who they are. And, you know, my little church in Milton um, here, I was just amazed when I came out, especially the older people. Um, and they would tell me things. And they'd suddenly start telling you about, you know, well, I've got a grandchild who's gay and such and such. And, you know, and I've had three marriages and such and such. And there was, you know, domestic violence here. And, well, this didn't work out. And I didn't behave well and everything and all that sort of thing. And they tell you all these stories that you've given permission to to be. And that's really what the church, be. you know, we should be, in, you know, that's that's part of our, our business. And it struck me with with the people, the reception in the little parish in Milton, was that I, I begin to wonder whether the real problem is actually, you know, clergy and, and and high ups and so on. Because we have too much care. We have, we're we looking at worst case scenario. If we accept transgender people or gay people, anybody with any difference and fully affirm them, that a lot of people are going to get upset. And actually, I, I think lay people are ahead of the game. I actually think they are already there, and they're desperate actually to be set free themselves. A lot of them, and I know there'll be a bit of backlash, but but you know there's so many people who are you know keep coming to me and they say, "Oh, I'm so pleased that you've that that you're out now because I can identify, and I'd I really like to come back to church, but I really don't feel that there's a place to be." And I say, "Well, there is," and I you know I'm working with a group in this country now called equal voices when we're trying to identify churches that are safe not not just churches that that say they're welcoming because lots of churches do that but ones that are truly welcoming you know that that really affirm and will use the gifts of people and affirm, and listen to their stories and everything else and um, you know i i want you know, it'd be great if every church was like that, but um, you know, they're more and more, so I'm I'm starting to list them really, so that um, to try and embarrass others and, and encourage other people, so you know, so it gets to a point where people say, well, why am I not on the list? You know, but we haven't quite got there yet.
0: I I, I guess for many people um, who go through uh, this sort of a journey, uh, the church might be the context of great pain for them, whether it is mm. a sense of uh, judgment or exclusion or. You know, maybe even fueling the the inner monologues of self hatred and self judgment that, yep. that that many people get stuck with for life, and that what ends up happening is that they might have this this beautiful experience of faith that contrasts with a tradition or an, an institution that is an experience of hatred, and that that must be a really hard thing to to reconcile.
2: I, I actually found what was really interesting was that many people found that their faith was enormous strength. Um, What they didn't find was the church necessarily was an enormous place of strength. Um, And and what I found was really interesting was a lot of of the people I interviewed um, started from a very rigid legalistic place in their faith journey. And there was one woman in particular that believed that her father was burning in hell because he didn't go to church. And that had caused her an enormous amount of anguish. Um, and what had happened over the, the the period was God becomes more expansive, God mm. becomes more loving. You know, theology becomes something that, and I I, I talk about God as a notion and our mind is a teaspoon frequently when I'm <laughs> talking um to to people about theology and and these people had suddenly had a a much more generous a much more expansive and and in many ways a much deeper faith because you know god had been there when all else had failed Mm. and i think that that was really interesting and i think what really struck me with so many of the people that i interviewed was just how when everything else had fallen away god was still there And that's sort of like, and I I mean, I quite like Bonhoeffer and that sort of costly faith thing. And, you know, that's sort of one of my favorite bits. Um, And I think it, you know, there is that real costly faith. And I think the other thing that I I think is really interesting as well is that what I have found, and because I have four churches, some of them are in rural Yorkshire. Well, they were all in sort of rural Yorkshire or a small city called Hull. and it is a very, very conservative place. And I remember as an openly gay man, when they voted me in, um, several people were a little worried about <laughs> it, to say the least. And they weren't worried for themselves. It was interesting. They worried what the other churches mm. would say. And I mm. think that was, that was really interesting. Yeah. They were, you know. But one of the things that, that sort of happened, and particularly with this book, when well, I'm doing a book launch, at, when I get back, and Tina, who's a dear friend of mine... Um, Uh, that Joe was talking about early is coming up to preach at it and they're all terribly excited. (laughs) Um, And most of these people are in their sort of 70s and 80s and and, you know you you hear them talking to their children about all this stuff and you hear the children silently freaking at the other end of the phone at this sort of you know and I think sometimes we think that older people in churches are actually the problem. I actually find what the problem is is people's perception of what (laughs) church is. And particularly people who don't go to church will frequently have a much more rigid view and a much more legalistic view of what church is about than people who actually go. And I think that's, that's a really, I don't know if that's the same in Australia, but I think that's very odd.
1: It's certainly true here. Um, I think our older members are actually the people who've been doing good theology for a lot of years. Mm. And... Uh, A few years ago I did a talking circle with the Mother's Union and we were talking about the future of marriage and family life and what would happen if if there was same-sex marriage. And the the consensus in the group of these people who were in their 80s and 90s was basically our task is to affirm whatever marriage and family life becomes because one of the lessons they had learnt through life was that by not affirming people's experience, they'd got it wrong. And so some of the people Mm. in the circle shared that, you know, when their best friend's husband left her, she got chucked out of the mother's union because she was no longer living, you know, the principles of Christian family life. And another friend, another one mentioned that a friend of hers had not been allowed to join mother's union because she was a single mum and reflected on how, of all people, that single mum was someone who actually needed the support of the Mother's Union, and Mary Sumner herself, the, fo- the founder of the Mother's Union, actually supported her niece, who was um, had a child out of wedlock. And so these the wisdom of the elderly, and I think there's a more practical theology in our laity, and I think that's where, where as Joe said, uh, often our laity are ahead of the professionals because the professionals are doing theology and then imposing it on reality, whereas a lot of our laity are doing action reflection all the time and uh, are expressing a theology that basically says people are good, I love people. God loves them. How do we affirm what they're doing? And, and like you, um, a few years ago, I employed uh, an openly gay man, and he's uh, as an organist in a, in another cathedral, uh, who's still there in Grafton. Um, when he arrived with his partner, um, it was the little old ladies who said, "Aren't they a lovely couple?" <laughs> <laughs> and this, you know, what what people anticipated would be a conservative country town, it was actually a place. Of really good theology and belonging and that couple settled in beautifully and, and as I say they're still there
2: but but also I think for me there is this the idea of blessings from the margins mm. the fact is mm. that, that you know if you look at forests which I think are really interesting places in the middle you've got forest and it's all pretty much the same and then you've got farmland but it's that in-between place mm. where there's that mixing. and, and
1: pioneers species. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's, that's where mm. all the
2: growth and the diversity mm. and all, all the life is. Mm. Mm. And I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes I think we're so busy being the forest that we actually forget that some of the really interesting stuff is actually happening on the margins of the church and the conversations that we need to have need, are, are those ones that are happening there. And I think for me that's something that's really important. Not just about transgender people, but all sorts of things
0: my journey growing up in a church which i imagine would reflect many people's journeys was a, a middle class suburban church on sunday mornings where really you're seeing the only the only view of community presented to you is a heterosexual white middle class view that that seems to be the certainly the vast majority if not the entirety unless they're playing maybe a A video about an African charity midway through the service that's really all you're presented with as far as diversity goes so a lot of people aren't equipped I guess with the 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 tools or the awareness or the open-mindedness to even uh, begin to approach this what what I guess would be a good starting point for, for for people to to I guess broaden their horizons
3: well, I think it. I, above all, I think it is the experience and of meeting people, and that. And if you can't do that, you know, read books like the one that Chris <laughs> has produced, because it's based on, on that. And but I, I think increasingly it's the case. You know, it's so so less a problem for for younger people, and um, yeah, get out. The old those people who are maybe it's the middle aged people. I don't know um, who are stuck to get out and and talk to listen to young. Um, to young people and and um, what's happening, I I think it's increasing thing. And you know, thank God we, we're lovely in the Anglican Church sometimes, and um, because we're not making a big deal of this in this sort of diocese anyway, um, so we let things happen. So it's happening in our schools, and once in a while, unfortunately, the media get hold of things. But there are you know transgender children in lots and lots of schools across the country, and I hear about some of these stories. And I don't make a big fuss about them because you know it's quite difficult sometimes for families. Um, so I think it's it, increasingly happening in families, and people will gradually own. Once they start owning, like I have now, thank God for marriage equality and things, that in fact you can start to own the fact that yes, you you know, if it's not your son, it's your cousin or someone else, you know, and that and then and then um, you can have that conversation and listen to people, and and grad, you know, we're still. I was on ABC recently, and and you know, we it was the first time there was a bunch of just a trans panel at all, you know, the ABC had ever done. And there was a bit of a thing someone wrote in and they said, oh, you're only point something percent of the population. I don't know what it is. And, um, uh, you know, and you shouldn't have your space. But the thing was that someone also then responded and said, well, you know, actually, if that's the case, then you should be having lots and lots of programs to catch up, you know. And it's because we haven't had that space. So in a way, I know some people say, oh, we're getting sick of hearing about trans people. Well, yeah, that sort of happens when, when people are, need to know, and, and I suppose as you say the fact is that lots of people don't know or when they hear certain things but they're not listening and there's a whole sort of stuff about gender theory and I'm doing a bit of teaching at the moment in the college and I do think people should think and read these things but at the end of the day it is about and this is the strength of an Anglican view and, and, and other churches is ultimately is a, is a more pastoral approach you know as people is what matters it's actually the Jesus approach really you know it's like yeah the, you know this the Sabbath or whatever and the law you know it matters and things because it does help and guide us a bit but ultimately you know the son of man, human beings are not made for the Sabbath or for any kind of rules or binary divin ideas of gender or anything but, you know, um, they're, they're there to help us. And if they're not helping us, we better change our ideas of them. You know, and male and female aren't going to disappear overnight. And that's not this kind of extraordinary kind of scary thing. But what we're doing is widening and broadening and enlarging our understanding of what it is to be human.
2: I also think there's something about privilege here as well. And I think one of the things particularly as a cisgender man, meaning sort of non-trans, is is probably the best (laughs) definition (laughs) not Um, terribly good is it but i know it's not very good but you know what i mean um it is actually being aware of your privilege being aware that you're not the person that actually has to every time they're going to the loo make a conscious decision Mm. because we don't have to because we just do it you know the whole world is organized towards us and I think one of the things that, that, that writing the book uh, has actually done is really made me aware of that privilege. And the fact is that sometimes if you feel that your privilege is being threatened, it can almost feel like discrimination because you're, not, you're used to the world being organized for you. So suddenly when you realize that there might be other people you need to think about, that can be incredibly confronting. And particularly when suddenly the way that you have viewed the world, and I think one of the things for me that's really interesting in the church is the only piece of real intellectual capital that we still have in the wider society is that we're custodians of the gender myth of Adam and Eve. And the fact is, I think part of the reason why the church has fought so hard around gendered things is because really that's the only place where we're still unchallenged. But all you need to do is look around the world and realize that there are many gender systems that are certainly very different. And also, Genesis has two stories. And it's a bit like what we do at Christmas. You know, we have these postcards where we have shepherds and kings and angels and stuff. But actually, they're two completely different stories that don't mesh. Well, the Genesis stories don't mesh either. But we sort of put them together and we say, so that means that we should have a binary gender, where for me... It, there were two people so of course there were only two genders but that didn't preclude that there would be more and I think sometimes that sort of privilege is something that is is very threatening for people and particularly I think if you build your theology on something that is very rigid you have to fight to keep it and I think part of particular conservative church has been very much about conserving privilege mm. And I think that's something that, that needs to be challenged because I don't think it helps those people either because mm. then what they're not seeing is all of the amazing diversity that God has created. Instead, they, they sort of like dig these intellectual castles and hide and occasionally take pot shots at other people. Um, and get terribly upset, whereas actually, there's something very freeing about going, you know, life is a mystery, God is a mystery, the world is a mystery, and actually, if I can just get out of myself a bit, maybe I can participate in that mystery.
0: I guess there's a deep fear in many people at the root of this, and it's a fear of change, it's a fear of perhaps losing something. I know that um, that there's a, there's a friend of mine who was speaking some time ago about uh, gender issues and was saying that, you know how how much of a beautiful experience they'd had uh, with a mother and a father, and you know their their argument was this: I don't want this to be lost. I don't want this to be lost. But I guess the the message here is nothing's being lost; more is being gained. Would you agree, Peter? Mm,
1: that's exactly right. Um, anything that is good and beautiful and nurturing will not be lost. It's uh, it's like through even though we've had now we've had uh, divorce as a as a really Um, available practice in Australia since the 1970s it has not diminished marriage in fact I think it's actually enhanced marriage because the marriages that last and the marriages that people feel drawn to stay into not the ones they're compelled to stay into but the ones people feel drawn to stay into are nurturing relationships which is what I you know I understand marriage to be rather than institution that you sort of smack people into and then say, well, if yours went pear-shaped, that's you know too bad, but you're still married, so you've got to stay with it. So having having divorce has not diminished marriage. In fact, I think it's been one of the things that's liberated marriage and has made it uh, so appealing that people uh, who are same sec- you know, same-sex people now want to be part of it because marriage has become a more beautiful thing, whereas 30 years ago... My gay and lesbian friends would have called me a fascist if I'd actually said I was going to advocate <laughs> for them to get married because they saw marriage as an oppressive institution. So you know, marriage has been saved by divorce coming along, if you like. And that will be so of of family. Uh, the families, The beauty of family is preserved whenever we allow people to flee from destructive families or create a different family. Um, and the beauty of gender likewise is as we celebrate who we are and understand the complexity of humanity um, the diversity of genders will become part of the blessing so we're not losing you know binary things are hardly ever blessings and it's not the way biology works you know biology isn't into binaries some of the scientific methods into binaries and that's one of the things that's been imposed on people for a long time now but biology itself invites us to understand complexity and diversity and to see that as the thing that's actually made the world a beautiful place that it is and so we're not going to lose anything that's good and beautiful we're going to lose stuff that's destructive and so Banging people into a gender because we've only got two is a destructive practice. By allowing people to understand themselves and define themselves and tell us who they are will actually enrich humanity's understanding of itself.
0: Can you speak a bit more about, obviously from your scientific background, Peter, about biology is not into diversity? Because I think that, that might be an interesting point that a lot of people aren't aware of.
1: It's not into binary. Into binary, yeah, yeah. sorry. So just just about every uh, biological uh, characteristic uh, fits a bell curve. So there are, so, so you have this incredible diversity across the range. But we, when we look at things, we tend to want to pigeonhole them. So, you know, the classic example of that is the way we actually divided humanity up into races. And we said there was the uh, Caucasians and there were the Negroids and there were the Mongoloids. And we sort of decided that on the basis of skin colour, really, that we could actually define people. And, and people spent ages trying to work out the difference in brain size, um, all other sorts of characteristics. Again, gender came into it, you know, genitals came into it. People wanted to work out which of the races had the largest genitals <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And for years, there was this this attempt to make race into a defining characteristic of humanity. But if you explore humanity properly, allowing, um, exploring a whole range of different characteristics, we discover that there's more diversity within what we call a race than there is between races which means that that construct which we actually you know all of us see we see you know, someone who's asian and we pigeonhole them into that particular group and the caucasians we separate and that they are they, those are total constructs it doesn't race does not exist and yet you think of all the energy we've placed into apartheid systems racial divisions separating ourselves into race on the basis of something that's actually not real and, so we've, and we're doing it, we've done it over gender, we've done it over uh, sexual preference. We've, and we have to remember that in terms of s- the systems we've imposed on ourselves, 100 years ago or 150 years ago, we only had one gender. Hmm. And that was man, and women were derived, derivatives of men. That's, you know, so, so we talked about men as if it included everybody. And so we've gone from one gender to two, and now we're exploring humanity a bit more. We're actually discovering that gender also fits on a on a bell curve. And so there are people who are definitely male, people who are definitely female, two ends of the spectrum. And then there are people who, uh, in terms of their biology or their, their, their genitalia or the way they understand themselves... Don't fit those two binaries because the binary isn't there it's actually a it's actually a continuum I think interestingly when the
0: same sex marriage debate was going on in Australia there was an inability for people who had never felt an attraction for the same sex to even comprehend what it, what that might be like and I think on a similar level people who do feel at one end of the the uh, gender binary I suppose or do feel quite sure of their gender it would be impossible to even begin to even understand what it would be like to feel like you were in the wrong body or to feel like you aren't fully yourself.
1: But that was certainly, that was a journey I went on about 30 years ago when I first met gay people at university. The first openly gay people I met were at university. Of course, I went to school with gay people, but didn't see them. And and the the way I pressed this, it was thinking, my sense of my sexuality is really clear to me and I can't accept the idea that I'm somehow the product you know I'm, I don't think I'm attracted to women just because I've been told that's what the you know it's it's more visceral right the attraction the attraction is deep within me so if someone is telling me that they are attracted to someone of the same sex I understand that visceral nature of that attraction and that's not just some sort of accident or decision it's not a choice So I'm just going to accept, I don't understand the same-sex attraction, but I'm going to accept that their experience is real, and they're therefore just as valid as mine, and I don't have to understand it to appreciate it. I just understand it because I understand what it's like to be attracted sexually to someone, and if that's what they're experiencing then my job is to hear that and honor it rather than to analyze it or to try and work out why it's so or to put it down to some sort of reason to do with hormones I mean that that's just clinicalizing humanity and if you're going to do that you can say that all our pleasure is just experiences of pleasure are just sort of dopamines running wild and you can you can reduce us to a whole bunch of chemicals and chemical reactions or you can appreciate our humanity and get excited that people are attracted to each other and people find love and people understand who they are and can actually share that story with you.
2: I, I, I think also and as because my own tradition is a reformed tradition which is very biblically based um, which you can probably tell from the book because I spend a lot of time talking about the Bible, um, which people find weird um, in some ways because you think you must be a fundamentalist. No, I'm not, I'm the opposite. Um, but the thing I find I have found incredibly useful when I am talking about different experiences is to actually find archetypes in the Bible. So, for example, w- it, particularly in, in trans faith, you know, there's a whole chapter on Job the idea of this person who fundamentally understands his own truth but everyone else is telling him he's wrong and what what happens in that is this person loses everything they end up sitting on a pile of ashes scraping their sores with pottery while people around are speculating doing theological work inverted commas on why this could have possibly happened and and you know all the time that this has just been this really weird bet between God and Satan, you know. And and the whole point of wisdom literature is it's a, it's not, you know. There wasn't somebody called Job. This is an exploration on on suffering and and how we theologize suffering, and 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 also sometimes use religion in order to blame people. But what's really interesting, I think, about for me about using Job as a as a character to talk about the trans experience is this idea of this righteous person who fundamentally knows who they are and no matter what crap everybody else is is sort of spouting around them not only do they hold on to their personhood but they actually go through this journey to the point that they are so utterly blessed at the end of it and rewarded for, for keeping their own personal integrity. And also that bit about God saying, you know, opening up to everybody and saying, wow, just look at all the complexity here. Yeah. You know, um, and of course you can't understand everything because it's really, really complicated. Okay, <laughs> close it down again and let's keep on going. <laughs> but you know what I mean? And there's something there about when when we can use the stories of the Bible, when we can engage helpfully by using the um, the stories that people know in order to say, so this is a bit what it's like. You don't yeah. have to understand.
3: That's right. You- I think. I think that's right. And then, you know, people call it what it's like. You know, reading with transgender eyes the Bible, and that's brilliant. And that, you know, and that's one of the best. You know, we had a discussion about that early. One, one of the best chapters I think in the book actually, even though some people find it tricky to begin with, about Job and about suffering and so. And how that, but. And and I think it's, there's a lot of things, you know, like I keep reading, you know, John 3 and stuff about, um, you know, being born anew or born above and stuff, you know, and I read someone, you know, someone's little testimony about their own journey the other day, and it was just full of all these, these metaphors, you know, rich spiritual metaphors um, um, that are there in the Bible, but we've not seen them. And they come alive again through trans people because I think, in a way, sometimes I think we're we're living miracles, you know. Considering you know the binary and all the other things that are trying to suppress us, and uh, and we're still here. And um, and we're in a way we're sort of pointers. And we just in our own way. I'm not saying we kind of. I wouldn't want to kind of hype it up too much. Little kind of like pointers to resurrection because we're kind of like living examples of it. And the other thing for me, and I, you know, my own journey, and I think that's why I've been spent a lot of time doing border crossing. I do my, most of my ministry has been um, mediating between different groups and things, and and crossing borders that most people don't, and things in all sorts of different ways. And I think it's that that's a gift. And I think it's because because I've sat, as it were, for most of the time as in the male world, but not been comfortable there. And I, but I could relate to <laughs> to Wimp. So that's one kind of. But, I think we have sometimes, it's that liminal thing, I think trans people, because we're sort of on those borderlands, we, we have actually quite a, a, a special gift to give to people, and which is why I think in many cultures, and sadly not in the Western Christian one, why so many trans people, you know, in indigenous cultures and things, why we've actually been religious sort of func- people, priests or equivalents and, and, and even goddesses, which is kind of a bit out of things. But you know, that because the sacred we we can kinda connect. And lots of people can do that, but but so it's is a you know, that's the thing, it's it's the positive then. So I think the gives it's the more we listen to transgender people more we get a new light on the Bible, you know it comes alive. I think Chris is quite right.
0: I I know Peter has spoken on this podcast extensively about that call into new life, that the resurrection obviously is much bigger than a body rising from the dead, potentially. It's it's about uh, being called out of our binaries, being called into, obviously, that, that great uh, verse from Galatians, no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, which uh, some people might take as a political statement. And, uh, you know, I suppose more it's more of a life statement. It's more of a, there is no longer any division or classification that can separate us. And um, I know, Peter, that you've spoken before about... Um, your belief of uh, almost the, the core of the faith is the baptismal call into into being authentically yourself that 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 is really what this is about you know i, th- I think you said on a recent episode that your obligation is to do peter cat as well as you can that, right. <laughs> and, and i suppose that that idea of living authentically that that faith enables you to actually live as authentically as you possibly can is at the core of all of this
1: absolutely it's that sense that yeah, you know, there's only going to be one Joe Inkpin in the whole of the history of the universe, and if Joe doesn't do Joe, thank then goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, we could all say that, but but you know, that sense that because of the unique way our brains are made, that cl- even cloning will not be able to reproduce who I am. Uh, this is it, and the, you know the baptism call you, it says you are a Christ. You're called. And you're called to be your true self and the community is called with that really sacred calling to enable you to discover what that is in within a community so that's why that you know that beautiful interaction that happens in the baptismal liturgy where the person makes their own promises and then the community promises to support them and it's about support it's not about constraining, confining, defining. It's actually saying, here is a unique person and our job is to help them live into that uniqueness. So we're going to have to hear who they are.
2: I also think we're always works in progress. And I think that's something that's mm. really important, the mm, Christian absolutely. journey is never yes. about that somehow we've arrived somewhere mm. and we don't have to keep yep. on growing. Yes. And I think sometimes that is part of the real challenge of a lifetime of Christianity. Mm. I, next month I get to celebrate the 100th birthday of, of one of my congregants and she's absolutely awesome. Yeah, you know, mm. she really, really, mm. she, you know, uh, the other day, bless her, she was having trouble with one of her carers. Said, "Do you want to speak? I can perfectly speak to them. I might be a, almost a hundred, <laughs> but it's absolutely fine." <laughs> but when you speak to her, you know, her life has been this amazing unfolding story that hasn't stopped. Mm. And I think what's what's the reason why I find her so utterly inspirational is the fact, that even at almost a hundred she's still stretching towards something. Mm. You know, she she has never rested on her laurels and her life has not been easy, but she's managed to continue to grow and to thrive despite everything that's happened. And I think that's what the Christian life should be. You know, um, I I remember one church I I was part of uh, many, many years ago. And they basically, you know, you joined and they gave you, you know, your eternity certificate mm. almost saying, you've now arrived, you don't have to do anything <laughs> yes, else, yes. you're fine. You know, and and I remember thinking, mm, I'm not quite sure this is what I need to sign up to here. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at, you know, and, and I've just spent Lent exploring Paul with my congregations and, and particularly Colossians and Philemon. Um, and this whole thing of about stretching and continuing to work out who we are is part of the christian calling and i think when we stop doing that i think we stop doing christianity and we start worshiping rules Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think when we start worshiping rules i think that is really not a very life-giving place because with rules there is punishment
0: i there there was a joke that uh I think my dad and I had of a church event we once that it felt like they were giving out heaven coupons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you come in, you get your coupon, and then you, you're good from that point on. And it is that evacuation theology, that idea that it's you know it's not actually about continual growth and dynamic movement and and a flow, but it's about nailing things down and and you know conserving things as they are. And maybe as a way to end, Joe, I'd love to hear, because I imagine coming to, to, I guess, this transition late in your life, it must feel like you have new life in a sense. It must feel like, you know, to have spent so long perhaps living with secrets, living with fear, living with shame, it must feel like you have this new sense of life that you're able to, um, to live out, that dynamic, constantly growing process. And I'd just love to hear about what that experience has been like for you.
3: Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it it has been tremendous. I mean, I I do have that. We had the dead naming kind of conversation early. um. You know, I do feel that. I mean, I've been quite blessed in lots of different ways. You know, beautiful uh, family and so on, and and lots of other things that have helped me to thrive, to survive, I suppose. But it's like um, I I felt my whole life I was living on the outside, really, and so now I'm I'm really coming home properly and and. You know, it's, it's it's been a real spiritual journey for me, and 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 it's out of my spiritual life that actually was the final trigger for that when um, I, I have a. Um spiritual director who talks about the difference between the the glare of God, which I think is what a lot of people experience a lot of the time, and the idea that God glares at us and makes us do things, and it's driven me into all sorts of things, and the gaze of God. And it's really hard to allow the gaze of God, you know, when you stop, you know, and contemplatively, and allow God really to, because actually there's a little bit of you that thinks that God doesn't really accept you. And I think, and, and it's coming to accept that, you know, I am fully accepted absolutely as I am. And then that sets you free, and it, it's an exuberant, feeling and and that's what every christian should really feel i think so it's it's that trust and you know and i i feel i'm incarnating if you like i mean it's not about kind of you know I and i understand why some people have talk about being in the wrong body but for me it's sort of like i'm entering fully into my own body now you know and, and and feeling comfortable in my own skin and so on and and in a way i think maybe that's what the church has been called to be at the most like to enter you know to to maybe have to Put up, say that we have to admit that we're not perfect, and 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 not be driven and try and perform, and you know, performance and all that sort of stuff, and that we pretend that we're such and such, and that let the let the gaze of God, you know, sit in, with the gaze of God, and, and and then we find that we have the energy and the grace to to actually thrive. And we won't be in two little lines, you know, like they tried to divide me up when I my first day at school. We'll discover that we're, you know, we we're a huge, wonderful mosaic and, and and dynamic. You know, one of those kaleidoscope things when I was little I and mean, we used to turn them around and they took different patterns all the time. It was absolutely magic for a little child before we had internets and all those sort of things. And um, I think you know that's what I you know one of the things I hope for the church. And I, I'm just, I'm amazed there's so many trans people in the church to be honest, and lesbian and gay people that we we've, what we've had to put up with. But you know, yeah, it makes you believe in God, doesn't it? Really, you know, God does some amazing things. And and I think we're really stuck because you know we've been so stuck as church, and we really should just kind of let go and and let God. I suppose that's really what I've discovered.
0: And I guess that entry into people fully becoming themselves and entering the flow, entering the dynamic process, is the beauty and what it's all about. Um, no, that's been a, a wonderful conversation. Chris, where can people get a, a hold of the book Trans Faith if they want to explore this matter further?
2: Um, well, there's the book launch and then afterwards we're, not 100% sure. It will be at the Cathedral Bookshop here in Brisbane. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> and also, you can buy it on Amazon.
0: Amazon. Track it down there. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Um, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a wonderful conversation. And we'll be back with another episode of the On the Way podcast shortly.
1: Thanks, Dom. Thank you. Thank you.